you'd open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 3. heaven again we thank you Lord for your grace that you bestow upon us each and every day we thank you Lord for the day we've had today to be able to gather together and worship you and and rest and relax and be able to come together again fathers we open your word and as we continue to look at the life of Christ through the book of Matthew we ask Lord that again you will help us to understand that you give to us father a comprehensive understanding of what is taking place That, Father, our minds may be full, that our minds may be filled with uh, a great understanding and knowledge of who Christ is and all that he accomplished, the things that he proved to those who he came to minister to. We pray, Lord, that would encourage us in our faith, that, Father, we would stand strong, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. So, again, we do thank you, asking for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13, it reads this way. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well, well pleased. The past uh, several Sunday nights, as we were going through Matthew, we spent some time looking at the mikvah, which was the ritual bath, the bath by immersion, the baptism that uh, the Jews would engage in really on a regular basis. Uh, we saw that there were a lot of things that an individual would do that required them to be immersed. And one of those is that a, all the priests were required to go through an immersion as part of a consecration and installation ceremony. And we saw toward the end of our study that the priestly line of Jesus came from his mother who was related to Elizabeth who was a descendant of Aaron. And so Jesus in this scenario was not an exception. Before entering his ministry he had to be immersed. And so he chose his cousin John, uh, John the baptizer, to be the witness. So when Jesus then submitted himself to the baptism of John, it was not because he was ritually unclean. It was not because he was coming to be coming to repent of anything. Uh, but he was making a change of status to a higher degree of holiness, really, is what was going on there. So when that took place, it says in verse 16 again, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So when you read through this text, one of the things that jumps out is this, is that we have the appearance, and it mentions the triune God uh, that we believe in, the God of the Bible. Remember again that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a unique God in many ways. Number one, he's unique because he's the only God. But when it came to other religions and how they viewed God and how they would understand God, regardless if they were worshiping the sky God or all the various idols that they were worshiping, the idea of the complexity of God, the, the infinite nature of God, 
And us, being, us as finite beings trying to, to grasp and understand who he is is a very difficult uh, thing for us even to imagine. And so here, what, what we see, and we see this presented throughout the Bible, that God is three persons in, in one. There's, there's a unity there that, uh, that's important for, it to, for us to grasp. It's not three different gods. It's not three, um, it's not three it, God doesn't appear in three modes. Uh, it is three beings, yet again, there is one. Uh, and this is meaningful in a lot of different ways. It continues to come out and helps us to understand the richness of who God is. And so we see then all three represented here. God the Son obviously was present in the person of the Trinity or in the person of Jesus. God the Spirit appeared in the form of a dove that came upon Jesus. And notice that it states that the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. And so if you look at some different translations, I'm just going to read from two different ones. The New King James reads, The Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Uh, The New American Standard says, The Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. So when it comes to the phrase, like a dove, and then the other phrase, as a dove, there are those who were trying to figure out, different commentaries, different commentators, trying to figure out what was it that the people saw when the Spirit came upon Jesus. So was it, they were saying that the Spirit descended uh, uh, like a dove, but it really wasn't a dove, it was just a way to explain how this event took place, and there's others who say, no... Yes, the Holy Spirit came like a dove, but it was a dove. It it was in bodily form. There was a dove that was descending, and of course that symbolized the Spirit of God coming upon him. So so which is it? Um, Again, the New King James reads, And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and in in you I am well pleased. And then in the... um, American Standard Version, it says the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form as a dove. And the English Standard Version says the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And the Christian Standard Version says the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And so I think those translations have have gotten it right. Those who are watching, they saw a dove. The Holy Spirit was coming like a dove. It was in bodily form in a dove. It had the appearance of a dove. They came upon him. There's something they recognized. So then the question would be, so why, why a bird? Why a dove? Why, why did that take place? And I think we can ask the question because when you read through the word of God, and I don't know if I want to say in particular the life of Christ, because it's not unique. I think everything in the Bible, everything God does, everything that goes on, there's a reason for everything that's taking place. There are connections that, that we need to look for. Not, not make up. We don't want to just kind of make something up out of the blue. But we want to ask ourselves these kinds of questions. So why this? Why that? What's going on? What is he communicating? And of course, remember that Jesus is, is really being presented to the nation of Israel as the Messiah. And so all these events, all these circumstances that he finds himself in are really very important. It was a major deal that he came to John and he was baptized. If that did not take place, that would have been very detrimental to his ministry among the Jews. They would have not have um, uh, accepted his ministry for a lot of different reasons. uh, Because he wasn't in line. When I say in line with Judaism, uh, we can use the phrase Judaism in two different ways. Remember that Judaism is, is the religion of the Old Testament. It, it, was, it was the right and true religion. Christianity comes out of Judaism. It's the fulfillment of Judaism. So Judaism in and of itself in the Old Testament is not wrong. It's correct. Judaism today is incorrect because they deny the Son. 
So we want to make sure that we keep those distinctions in mind. So when Jesus was keeping himself in line with Judaism, he did draw a line several times, making sure that they understood there was a difference between what God had said in the Old Testament and their traditions that sometimes went beyond what the Scripture said. And they would come to wrong conclusions. And there are times that Jesus, I believe, purposely would do and say things to expose the uh, misunderstanding they had of the Old Testament. A misunderstanding of God. A misunderstanding of themselves. A misunderstanding of salvation. A misunderstanding of what is important. So in the life of Jesus then, the coming of the Holy Spirit is a very important event. And the fact that it's a bird uh, is not uh, just an arbitrary thing. And the fact that it's a dove is not an arbitrary thing. So let me give you a little bit of background on the thinking of that. Because remember that the people, uh, the, the Jewish people in the life of Christ, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people were immersed in the Old Testament. The way that they thought, the way they viewed all of life was foundationally built on the Old Testament. Remember that when they were young and they went to school, your first six years of school was only studying the Old Testament. You, you didn't study anything else. You didn't study math. You didn't study science. The first six years was only the Old Testament. And again, the reasoning for that was uh, the Jewish belief was we're trying to prepare our children uh, to live godly lives in this world. And what a young man needs, what a young woman needs is character. The character of God or the character that comes from God. You don't get that anywhere else except from the Word of God. So you're going to steep them in the Word of God, and then after that period of time is over, then you learn your trade. Whether you're going to be a carpenter, whether you're going to be a fisherman, because the idea then is that you are a godly man who's a carpenter, and you're going to do right in business. You're going to do right by your family. If you're a fisherman, you're going to do it the right way. Uh, you're going to do it as a godly man, a man of integrity, a man of honesty. Because that was what was important to them. They valued that, and that was based on the teaching that comes from the Old Testament. So all of these individuals, then, that, that Jesus is, is speaking to and teaching, the ones that John is preaching to, all of them, when they were younger, had lives that were immersed in the Old Testament, memorizing large portions of the Old Testament. It was, it was in their mind. They would immediately make connections and have understanding about, uh, you know, when it came to the things that Jesus said. And so, as we work our way through Matthew, there will be times that we will have to pause and say, okay, we need to go back to the Old Testament. And the reason why we're looking at it is not just because we've suddenly discovered some Old Testament connection, but we need to make sure that we recognize that because the people that Jesus was ministering to and teaching, they were already making those connections. There were times that you can tell from the way that Jesus spoke, he was assuming they already knew what he was talking about. And, and they did. It was because of, again, the way their thinking was steeped in the Old Testament. So, in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, it reads this way, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in the Hebrew language, the uh, words that are used for hovering over, um, the Hebrew word for that, uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce uh, the word in Hebrew because it's a little difficult, but it's a word that is used for a mother bird that hovers over her eggs just before they hatch. So, so when these kids would go to school and they would begin to memorize the book of Genesis and they would talk about what, was, what they were reading. The rabbi of the school, he would teach them these things. He would teach them 
uh, and he would emphasize words in the text. And so he would emphasize this word hovering here um, that, is being, that, that is used in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. And so if you look at an ancient rabbinic commentary on the book of Genesis, when, it's, when it talks about Genesis 1-2, it says this, The Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the waters like a dove, which hovers over her young without touching them. And so they would explain that. And so uh, from the very beginning, they were talking about a dove, this particular bird, the, the gentleness, the care uh, that this bird has over as it watches over its eggs. So this is what the Holy Spirit was doing as it was hovering over the face of the waters and over the face of the deep. So then at the baptism of Jesus, this picture would have been in the mindset of the Jewish community. Now, when I say at his baptism, that was when, when they saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove on him. That would be the connection they, that they would make. Remember that they, they understood uh, the teaching of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit coming upon a person for a special mission. They believed the Old Testament. Uh, they were taught that only a very few unique people uh, would experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that, 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 that happened rarely and only for, on special occasions. And usually what we see as we see the Old Testament, to empower the individual to do something unique, a special purpose of God, and then when that purpose was fulfilled, the Spirit of God would leave. That was why, again, as we remember we went through the book of Acts, why it was such a huge deal when the people saw uh, the disciples all speaking in tongues, where there was this evidence that the Holy Spirit had come and was indwelling all of these individuals. And the teaching that when you come and believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit would come and indwell the individual on a permanent basis. That was mind-altering to, these, to the Jewish people. It wasn't because they knew nothing about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They did know about it. But what they were accustomed to was that it was very rare. It only happened to certain people. And the certain people that it happened to were very unique, very godly, very gifted. Now, is, is it a, it's a common thing. Well, not really common in the sense that it was not holy, but common in the sense that now everyone was now open to that because of what Christ had done on the cross. And so this, this, these people then, as they see this happening in the life of Jesus, they're, they're making these connections in their mind. Remember that there were there's a good number of individuals that did believe in Jesus. It wasn't a massive number compared to those who lived there in Israel. But remember, it was more than just the 12 disciples. Because later on in Acts, we have a group of 500 uh, that are gathered around uh, that, that witness and experience the things that are going on. And then there was a mass number of conversions very early on in the ministry of the apostles. Why? Because they understood how the, how the life of Christ and what the disciples were teaching and preaching all culminated just kind of almost naturally fit like hand in glove in the life of Christ. They didn't, have to, they didn't have to be taught those things. They already knew that. And so, you know, they're preaching in one day and 3,000 conversions. That was just an incredible instance. But one that was really, in one sense, I don't want to say to be expected, but these, these individuals were already primed and ready. They already knew the Old Testament. They, they already believed in God. They already believed in the Holy Spirit. They already understood that man needed salvation. They already understood that man was separated from God and that man had sin. They, they already knew all those things. And so then their responding to the gospel message was one that was, in, in one sense, much easier than it would be for those who do not have that background at all. 
So at the, at, at the baptism of Jesus then, this picture of what we have here in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 would have been in the mindset of the Jewish community. It would have been clear to them that, that those witnessing this baptism, that the Spirit of God had descended upon Jesus. They would not have thought it to be anything else. They only would have thought it was that. And then of course God the Father made His presence known audibly saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I thought about this. You have a group of people, we don't know how many are there. I don't know if there's 30 people or if there's 100 people, but there are people there who are witnessing what's taking place, and they hear God speak from the sky. Why aren't they turning and running to the hills? I mean, I don't know about you, but if all of a sudden we're gathering outside, and let's say that all of a sudden we start hearing a voice booming uh, from, from the sky, some may run, some may fall to their knees, but it wouldn't be a ho-hum day. It would be a very unique experience. And so I'm, I was thinking, so what's going through their minds when they hear this? I mean, it's tr- certainly, it's, it's a miraculous thing that is taking place. This was something that obviously they hadn't experienced before. So, so what's going on here in their mind? Well, they were kind of familiar with the teaching that they had that, that you know, because of God's silence, uh, we, you'll hear people say that between Malachi and Matthew, there was 400 years of silence where God did not speak um, through a prophet to the children of Israel. And in their theology, they believed that there were times that God would speak, usually very short sentences, and that he would speak audibly because there were no more prophets. So this was, in one sense, it wasn't shocking. It might be surprising because they weren't expecting that. But it wasn't some kind of a stunner where they were kind of confused like, wait a minute, what are we hearing? Is that God? They all would have immediately assumed it was God. Because of course, God does that. So Israel was very familiar First of all, with the visible manifestation of God. We've talked many times before about the Shekinah glory. Uh, the easiest way to remember that is when the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness and they followed the pillar of cloud in the day and it was a pillar of fire at night. We call that the visible manifestation of God. In other words, that pillar was not God, but it was a visible manifestation that God was there, that God was with them, that God was leading them. That's the Shekinah glory is what that is. So they were very familiar with that, and so they were also familiar with the rabbinic teaching on the audible manifestation of God, and that's the name of the title of the sermon tonight. Now, it looks like it's Bat-Kol, but it's actually pronounced B-A-T-H, so it's Bath-Kol is how you would say that, and I'm sure I'm not really giving enough of a guttural sound uh, for how it would actually be said by a Jewish person, but that was a rabbinic teaching that they were familiar with. That there would be, that there was, from time to time, no one could predict it, there would be an audible manifestation of God. And he would speak, and he would speak clearly. They would understand exactly what was being said. And again, it was usually something that was very short, and we can see here that God speaks very clearly, and it's very succinct in what he says. So here, God then speaks, and he identifies Jesus as the Son. So if you would, turn your Bibles to the second psalm. Because we're going to spend some time on that. Because this would have been in their minds when all this was going on. So I wanted to make sure that we have a good understanding of Psalm 2. Almost every single Jewish person there would have many of the psalms memorized. 
And when you have things that are memorized, it's easy for that to kind of come into your mind when you're witnessing things. You, you begin to, you know, you start making connections because you're familiar with it. And, and that kind of, you know, gives you that, that paradigm that God wants us to have. So Psalm 2 verse 12 says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. In the English Standard Version, it reads, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So I don't know if you know this or not, but the second psalm is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's referred to more than any other psalm that exists. It fits together in really a very interesting way with Psalm 1. I came across this. Um, there is a, I can't remember his first name. He's called Dr. Cooper. He's dead now. Uh, he was uh, a Jewish man uh, who was wa- very well versed in the Old Testament uh, and had become a believer, a very brilliant individual. And uh, he makes a connection uh, uh, between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, the way he compares them. So before we compare them, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the second Psalm, uh, follow along in whatever translation you have. The translation I'm reading from is the standard, is the Christian Standard Version or the Holman Bible, whichever one you have. Uh, there are several good translations, and so uh, as I was reading through the different translations this week, uh, looking at this, um, I liked this one the best, um, just the way, that it's, the way that it's worded and the way that it's translated, so let me read it to you. Again, Psalm 2, it reads this way, Why do the nations rebel, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, And the rulers conspire together against the Lord and His Anointed One. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord ridicules them. Then He speaks to them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath. I have consecrated my King on Zion, my holy mountain. I would declare the Lord's decree, He said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, and you will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise, and receive instruction, you judges of the earth, and serve the Lord with reverential awe, and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All those who take refuge in him are happy. So again, when God said from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, there's a pretty good chance that many of them, maybe most of them, immediately thought of the second psalm. And because of what it says. So when you compare the two together... Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, uh, these are the things that Dr. Cooper has pointed out just by his observations. Number 1, Psalm 1 begins with how blessed or or happy. Psalm 2 ends with the same word in Hebrew. uh, And it ends in in the Christian Standard Version with the word happy. Uh, In Psalm 1, it ends with a threat. In Psalm 2, it begins with a threat. In Psalm 1, the godly man meditates on God's law. In Psalm 2, the wicked meditates, and whether you use the word devising or plot, it's the same Hebrew word. In Psalm 2, the wicked meditates on how to cast off the rule of God. 
And then fourthly, in Psalm 1, the theme is the contrast between the righteous and the wicked person. In Psalm 2, the theme is the contrast between the rebellion of wicked rulers and nations and the rule of God's righteous Messiah. Uh, again, remember that when you come across the anointed one, that's just another way of saying the Messiah, because that's what the word Messiah means. It means the anointed one, or the anointed one of God. So Psalm 2, then, has a structure that is kind of presented in four dramatic acts. And so uh, Dr. Cooper goes on and points this out. He says in Act 1, which is the first three verses of Psalm 2, David raises the question about the chaos in the world. And the kings and the rulers come forth in a chorus to say their lines. In Act 2, God calmly sits upon his throne in heaven and speaks his line against the rulers. Then in Act 3, which is verses 7 through 9, God's anointed one, or the Messiah, speaks and reveals God's decree or predetermined plan for dealing with man's rebellion. And then in Act 4, which is verses 10 through 12, the psalmist speaks out again, giving a closing appeal in light of the previous acts. So the psalmist then, in Psalm 2, he's saying three things. Number one, the nations have rebelled against God. But, number two, God is sovereign. He's not caught off guard, and he has a predetermined plan to judge man's rebellion. Thus, number three, we must submit to him while there is still time. So the idea then that is being presented in the psalm in conjunction with what's going on here in the life of Christ, his baptism, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and God's pronouncement uh, that he is the Messiah. Remember that um, we've mentioned this several times, there's more than one view that the Jews held as to why the Messiah would come and how the Messiah would come. There were those who believed that when the Messiah would come, that, he, that, that when he would come, he would be a conquering king, and he would set things right, and Israel would once again uh, be really the center of, of, of the world. There is truth in that, because the Bible does present that. What we know, obviously in hindsight, is that is what Jesus is going to do when he comes the second time. He's coming to conquer, and he's going to establish his kingdom. There were those who believed so strongly in the coming of the Messiah, and we're having a hard time reconciling what all the Old Testament said about the Messiah, they believed there would be two different Messiahs. That one Messiah would come and suffer, and he would die, and then another Messiah would come, and this would be the one who would come and who would conquer. Now, they weren't clear as to, that the, they weren't clear that the Messiah was going to be the Son of God. You know, there was a belief that he would probably be a Pharisee. Many of them believe he'd be a Pharisee that he'd be some kind of an elevated, very spiritual, very godly man. But the idea that he would be the Son of God was not really in their thinking. They weren't necessarily against that, because there are many who responded to that, uh, to who Jesus was when he came, but that wasn't in their, in their mindset. Then you did have a smaller group that did understand, I believe, that when Jesus came, or when the Messiah would come, they didn't know it would be Jesus, but that when the Messiah would come, that he would be coming primarily to deal with Israel's separation from God. He would be coming to deal with Israel's sin. That that was the most important thing, and that had to be dealt with first before anything else could happen. And, and many of these early believers, I believe, were those who were leaning in that direction. They were, they were understanding what the scriptures were saying about that, and, and that's what they were leaning towards when Jesus came. So those would be the ones, I believe, who would have converted early on in the ministry of Jesus. They didn't have any, any of these other... Uh, hang-ups in, in the bad understanding of who the Messiah would be or what the Messiah would represent. So you would think then, on one hand, 
that everyone would welcome God's Messiah. That when God sent His Messiah, that everybody would welcome Him. Because He was coming to save us from our sins. He was coming to save us. But remember, the issue is not just salvation. Jesus didn't come to save us so that we could get a free ticket to heaven and go our own way. The issue really is the Lordship of Christ. And that's what's presented here in in the second psalm. Remember that the nations that are raging against Him are raging against Him being a ruler. They don't want to submit to Him. They want to overthrow Him. They want to go their own way. They want to rule themselves. So the Lord's anointed, or the Messiah, is the King who's going to reign. And if He's not going to reign with our willing submission, then it will be by forced submission when He comes. He does not take second place to anyone. As the Bible says, every knee will bow. And so again, all these thoughts would be running through the minds of many of these individuals as they heard the voice of God uh, pointing out and declaring who His Son is. So the exhortation then, of verses 10 through 12, applies to each person. So looking once again, my, uh, my notes are a little confused here, so let me get back to the right... Uh, to the right passage. <clears throat> so verses 10 through 12. So now kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, for He will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For His anger may ignite at any moment. All those who take refuge in Him are happy. So again, the exhortation that he gives here is not just to the nations, it's to the individuals as well. All people must show discernment. They need to take the warning that's being given. All people should bow in submission and fear before God and kiss the Son in in reverence and in obedience to to His Sonship. The picture again here is, is that of bowing and expressing submission before a monarch so that you won't incur His displeasure. Remembering that this bowing to Christ and the the idea of kissing the Son, that is not God kind of going out on a limb because He's an egomaniac. That's the right and the proper way for us to respond to the Son. Remember that when we come across individuals, and you can see it in society, as you see our society continue to turn away from the ideals in the Bible. And that is that when people refuse to believe in Christ, because it's always that, there's always a refusal to believe, whether they say they're not ready yet or whatever the, whatever the excuse may be, in the end, that's what's in their heart. Remember that that is an act of rebellion against God. Men and women are only called to repentance. They are commanded by God to repent. Both those are true in the scripture. And when individuals rebel, they don't want God ruling. What man wants, and if you listen to Ravi Zacharias, or you listen to different speakers who are uh, giving what we call apologetical types of speeches, what they, what they keep bringing out more and more, especially over the past ten years, is that what man wants, especially in our society, in our culture, what man wants is to be autonomous. He wants to be absolutely free from all restraints. And the primary restraint that man wants to be free from is God. The idea of God, and in particular, the God of Christianity. They don't want that. Because when you read through the Bible, when we talk as Christians, what we talk about is that God rules over what? Every aspect of life. 
He has something to say about the, ra- the way I raise my children. He has something to say about the way that I work. He has something to say about the way I treat my wife. He has something to say about how I spend my leisure time. He has something to say about everything. He has something to say about the way I think. He has something to say about the way I evaluate and look at the world. And man doesn't want that. They don't want anyone telling them what to do. They want to be absolutely free. And so this is an act of rebellion that the na- what we see the nations doing here is nothing more than a collection of individuals. They're expressing the will of the people. And so we must submit to Christ as Savior and Lord. When we talk about the Lordship of Christ, we're not saying that you must live in perfect obedience or you're not going to make it. The idea is, is that we submit to everything we know about Christ. And then the more we learn about Christ, the more we understand what we are to submit to. The desire of the heart needs to be there, that we want to submit. We're going to obey imperfectly, but we should obey more and more the longer we walk with the Lord. But we cannot obey the Lord if we have the spirit of rebellion still within us. That's unnatural for a believer to have that. There may be a few things in the Bible that we struggle with, that that maybe we kind of like, oh, either we're not unsure about it, we've never heard about it before, but there's still this willingness to understand what the Bible says. And we, and we submit to that because we know that it's right. And so sometimes we may take a little longer to really grasp what it says, but once it's clear, the Bible is correct and right, and we submit to it. And you remember that the non-believing world, they don't, they don't want to do that. That's why we talk about the Spirit, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to convict the world of sin, to, to convince them uh, that there is a judgment, that it's a righteous and holy judgment, and that they need Christ. And that apart from Him, there is no other way of salvation. The only way we can escape that is by submitting to Him to kiss the Son, as it says here in this passage. So the urgency of submitting to Christ is expressed by the phrase, when His wrath is kindled. Or as the New American Standard says, for His wrath may soon be kindled. Or the English Standard Version, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Or the Christian Standard Version, for His anger may ignite at any moment. So even though the signs, I believe, of our times point to the soon coming of Jesus Christ, and we know the first time He came, He did come in mercy. He came to save. The second time He comes, He comes in wrath to judge. Remember that, you know, I believe that there's a very real millennial kingdom that's going to exist on the earth. It begins with God's judgment. There is the judgment of the what? The judgment of the nations. That's what it begins with. It begins with the judgment of God. And when the millennial reign ends, it ends with the judgment of God on all the unrighteous. And, and where they will be sent into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Judgment is a very real thing. That's what he's talking about here to these individuals who are rebelling. That they're not going to escape. And so, again, even though I believe that, that the various signs point to the soon coming of Christ, uh, and that the end time events predicted are all lining up, even if his coming is delayed... You and I have no guarantee that we're going to live another day on the earth. So if we don't submit to Jesus Christ before we die, we will face His wrath. Hebrews 9.27 says, As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. Matthew Henry says, Those that will not bow shall break. So again, verse 16, back in the book of Matthew. When He had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so again, 
the, 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 uh, the majority of the people there, when they were hearing these words being said, they weren't said in a vacuum. The backdrop, I believe, is Psalm 2. And where there's a warning given to the nations. To what? To hear the Son. He's identified the Son. The Son is here. I, God, I am well pleased in Him. So God speaks. The God of all creation speaks. The God who's truly offended by our sin speaks. The God who all our sin is rebellion against speaks. The God who will judge speaks. He has identified the Son, and the Holy Spirit has anointed Him for service. So God's call to you, and God's call to me, is to kiss the Son. God's Son, God's anointed, the Messiah, in reverence and submission. Again, by kiss the Son, that's just a a way of saying that we are to pay respect to Him. That we are to pay our homage to Him. We need to salute Him as King in the customary way. Because if we don't, He will be angry because our lack of that is disrespect. It goes back to the two terms that we see used in Romans chapter 1. Where the world already knows, every individual knows that God is against two things. Unrighteousness and ungodliness. Unrighteousness is our active sin against others. Stealing, lying, murder, violence, those things. What is ungodliness? It is a refusal or a failure to kiss the Son. To recognize the Son. It is to put God, it is to put Christ on the back burner. It is to treat Him as if He is common. To treat Him as if He is a nobody. To, to not give Him the respect that is due Him. As it says in Romans 1 again, that though they knew God to be God, they were not thankful. They had no respect for Him. And so then He will be angry. And it's a righteous anger. Because of the omission of the customary token of respect, it is an insult which naturally angers the one who should be honored. And you will then perish in your way. To anger the Son is to bring destruction on our way or our course of life. When His wrath is kindled but a little, rather for, for soon His wrath may be kindled, blessed are all they, or happy are all they that put their trust in Him. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We then are happy, we then are blessed, knowing that day is coming because we have kissed the Son. By God's grace, by His work in our heart, we have submitted ourselves to God. We have submitted ourselves and paid Him the proper respect. And we are to do so for, throughout our life. So when that time comes, though we may have a lump on our throat, and we may be a little nervous, all of our trust is in Him. And He can be trusted. And it's not that we will escape judgment. We've already escaped judgment. Because our sins have been punished in Christ. In that we can rejoice. And that is the message that we are to carry to others. The others that are like Psalm 2. Those that are plotting a way to rebel and remove God from their thinking. We see that in our culture, in our society, in every facet of our society. It continues to take place. Don't let anyone fool you into thinking that it's anything other than that. Because when you deal with political correctness, when you deal with the way that that the laws and and the, the attitude of our society changes... I think it's pretty clear that even though no one really wants to admit it, it it's a, there's a particular focus. It's on Christianity. They're not making all that hullabaloo about Islam. They're not out there trying to get rid of Buddhist thinking. It's only one. It's Christians. And Jesus said, don't be surprised. They hate you. 
because they hated me first. It is nothing more than what began in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve. It's rebellion against God. And man may say it's other things, but it's not. And we need to recognize it for what it is. And that's why we know, another way we know, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer and man's only hope. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your grace and your kindness and your goodness and again for what we have here in your word. Father, it must have been an astounding thing to be among those, that group of people there that were watching Christ be baptized, to see the Spirit of God descending upon him, and then to hear the voice of God that this was his Son, and then to connect that with what they knew to be true in the first and second psalm. I wonder, Lord, how many nights of incredible discussions they had in trying to figure out what all of that would have meant. And that I'm sure that many of them, Father, would have been leaning in the correct direction. That there would have been both fear and joy, sorrow and gladness over this event that was taking place. And how many of them must have marveled over the events that would take place over the next three to four years in the life of Jesus. And the things that he did, as well as the things that he taught. Father, we pray that you would help us once again to recognize that all these things that we are reading about are things that we know to be true. That when we read Psalm 2, Father, we clearly identify what is going on. And we can see again how you and your grace and mercy have sent Christ to deliver man so that man will be able to pay the proper respect to you, which is again through Christ, through believing in, in the one that you sent, in, in the gift of salvation that you've given to us, that we might be reconciled to you before it's too late. And Father, we pray that we will also have a, a sense of urgency. Not, Lord, panic, but a sense of urgency as we share the gospel of Christ with those that we meet, as we pray for them as well. And so, Father, we pray that you would cause us to think on these things, perhaps to even to reread the second psalm a little slower and dwell on the truths that are presented there. Perhaps, Lord, it would send a shudder up our spine as we realize the, the, the incredible foundational truths that are there. But also, at the same time, to cause us to break out in song and express our thankfulness, Father, to you. Because you have saved us from the wrath to come. And so, Father, we do thank you once again for your word. In Christ's name, amen.